0: Hey, we are in uh, week five this morning uh, of our summer teaching series uh, called The Good Fight, where we are learning, teaching, and growing uh, together through the book of 1 Timothy all summer long. And uh, today we are in First Timothy chapter 2. Now how many of y'all have taken the challenge and been reading First Timothy, uh, you know, uh, multiple times a week and, and just, you know, multi- have you, if you've read it, have you, if you've read First Timothy uh, in the last month, uh, you know, raise your hand. How many of y'all, how many of y'all have gotten to like First Timothy 2 and just been incredibly confused? Uh, been like, what? Like, what, what is that all about? Um, struggled with... with uh, male patriarchy and and, uh, all of that. So um, uh, I want to give you a little heads up this morning as I get started. So I'm about to teach an incredibly difficult passage of scripture. Uh, It's one that I've never taught before in my career. Um, It's it's a very controversial uh, topic. It's been a source of great division and pain in the church for a long, long time. So I just... uh, It goes without saying. I appreciate your grace on this one today. All right, I'm taking my wife and kids on vacation uh, later this week, so I I just felt like if this message doesn't land, at least I'll be out of town. You know, so uh, ask ask Pastor Josh or the elders. They'll they'll be happy to explain it all. Um, You know, First Timothy is a is a book where uh, when when you kind of boil it all down, uh, it's really a book where Paul is instructing Timothy about how the church is to function in in an environment that is of a city that is incredibly pagan and sinful He's giving instruction that, like, the church is supposed to have order. The church is supposed to function these ways. It's not just a free for all. Like, like, the, the, there's, there's an appropriate way for the church to handle themselves. For the in the church, uh, as, as we know and as we've taught here, you know, it's not a, the church is not the building. It's not a location. The church is the people of God, and so the people of God in the city of Ephesus are being told. They're being instructed by Paul how they are to function, how they are to handle themselves in light of everything happening. Around us. So, in previous weeks, we've talked in this series about how, within this pagan culture of Ephesus that was filled with so much sin, how interesting it is that Paul instructs Timothy not to look outward at the problems going on around the church, but instead to look inward at the broken things within the church i i just think that's like an an incredible distinction to make because we've spent time in this series really explaining how how crazy and wild and pagan you know the culture really was in ephesus and you would think that the instruction would be for the church to sort of infiltrate culture and to sort of change what's going on and you know around them but instead paul instructs timothy to look inward at the church to look inward at the things that are broken and that are happening in the church. And so this is what we're going to do today. And instead of looking at the controversies hap- controversies happening around the church, and there's, there's plenty, right? You know, just, uh, you know, look at your notifications or, or uh, turn on the news or whatever it is. There's a lot of controversies happening around the church. Uh, but instead of looking at that today, we're going to look at, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at a controversy within the Christian movement, within the Christian movement. So today, right now, whether we realize it or not, and whether you pay attention to the things happening in the greater church or not, uh, we find ourselves in the midst of a controversy that has divided the Christian church for hundreds of years, which has uh, become particularly heated in recent decades. Today, we're going to wade really deep uh, into the deep controversy, if you're taking notes, of women and their role in the church. We're going to look at at this controversy that has existed in the church for a long time about women and their role in the church. Now, if you're a guest here this morning, what a day to, to show up. I uh, just want to welcome you, and thank you for uh, being here today. Uh, I promise uh, there's better preachers and there's better Sundays, so uh, give, us, give us a shot. But, but uh, uh, man, this is really important for you, okay? If, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus... If you, if you read through Scripture sometimes and you're like, man, that's crazy, I don't understand why that's in there, and you just sort of have to move on because it's it, you just don't know what to do or how to interpret it, uh, this is good for you. There has been issues in the church for a long time about how to treat women, what their role should be in the church, uh, and and, uh, and and so today I want to help give us really good clarity on what all of this stuff means. And so, We're gonna look specifically this morning about whether or not women are permitted to teach and or hold a leadership position within the church. The reason why we're talking about this today, as I've said, is because 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote some pretty controversial things to Timothy that today we are left to sort of interpret and try to figure out like, you know, when you take what Paul said at face value, it's very shocking. It's very difficult to stomach, especially in light of, of maybe the cultural conversation happening around us. And so um, we're going to try to navigate some tough scriptures, and I'm going to give them to you on the front end. Um, I'm going to explain the controversy, and then I'm going I'm to help us sort of break apart these scriptures in their context to know what they really mean. And then I want to give you some examples in the Bible from beginning to end of, of uh, women in scripture. So 1 Timothy Chapter 2, 8 through 15, Paul writes, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Let me just stop for a second. Okay, like, like what is he talking about? What, Paul, what Paul's getting into right here, he also gets in, into in 1 Corinthians 11. If you remember, you can go look at that. I'm not teaching on that today. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he instructs men and women that when they prophesy, they should do it differently. That, that men should prophesy with their heads uncovered and that women should prophesy with their heads covered. to make a, Really, a, really. I think the purpose is for there to be a gender distinction between the two when one is prophesying. But the other idea here is that is that is in their culture you know the, the hair of a woman was was uh, was her beauty it was it was her glory was was in her hair and so the idea here was that when she were to prophesy she should cover her glory because when they gather in church the only glory that should be on display is the glory of god that's the instruction paul gives the church in corinth and it's really similar to what he's saying here in first timothy that that hey hey ladies like like, it's good teaching. It's good instruction to, to, to not overemphasize the outward appearance and to put more attention on, on how you look on the inside than you, or on the outside than you do on the inside. That's really what Paul is saying here. Like, like be very mindful that the things you're known for the most are the things that you have, you have let the Holy Spirit build in you on the inside. Be a, a, a godly woman. Uh, you know, that, that, let that be something that you're known for. okay. Now we get into like tougher stuff. Verse 11, Paul writes and says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Uh, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Yeah. 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 And to just uh, sort of add to the, to the challenge this morning, uh, I want to also highlight 1 Corinthians 14, uh, where Paul writes these words. He says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it, it, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right. Appreciate some prayer. Really, really tough text to teach. Really tough to read for some of you who have read these, these, these passages and just not known what to do with it. Uh, really tough to teach this text and then leave for vacation, you know? Um, in some ways, maybe that's a blessing. But... uh you know, the controversy that I want us to look at this morning really gets to the heart of scriptural interpretation, theology, and church structure. That's really what is going on. How you study the Bible and how you structure your church, how your church is set up, shapes how you answer the question about women in church leadership, so much so that, that, that if, 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 I don't know if you didn't know this or not, but, but so much so that denominations, and there's many of them, are divided on this issue. Like, 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 I don't know, like, what your context is of what you grew up in, or the, if, you, if you grew up in church, you know, uh, if you grew up in a denomination that, that, uh, that, 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 that had a position on this or not. Regardless, there are so many different views out there on this issue that are held by Presbyterians, Southern Baptists, American Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, Episcopalians, Catholics, uh, just to name a few. There's others. The different views held by these denominations, they fall all over the map. And so it can be difficult for us to know, well, where what, what is right? Like, what is, what is true? And I think that regardless of what we've known or believed or been taught, I, th- I think that we all, I, I would assume, would be at a place that regardless of what we've been taught and learned, like, the greater desire is to actually understand Scripture correctly, right? To actually know what it's really teaching, um, even if there, maybe there's been... Uh, some things mistaught to us o- o- over the years. So you have this issue in the church within, you know, along denominational lines, but the conversation is also shaped by the larger conversation in culture around gender, feminism, the wage gap, and the Me Too movement, right? Like, it, it's like this issue that's going on, and it's going on right now in the church. I don't know if you don't, you know, pay attention to the to the greater, larger church, that's fine. Like, you don't, don't always have to, but there's a, there's a huge conversation in the last couple decades around this issue and and then then you put put that you know on the same stage as some of these bigger things going on with women and culture and 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 it's 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 very 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 difficult uh to navigate. Let me just say that when when over 60% of the American church is female the issues surrounding women and what it means to be female are crucial to the health of the church. Crucial to the health of the church. With so many women in the church we should be asking, like, what if the church has gotten some things wrong in terms of how to treat women, how to care for them, and how to empower them? Like, like it, we should think about that. With, with a huge percentage of, of, of our church filled with women, like, this isn't like some small amount where it's like, hey, it's n- no big deal. It doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, it does matter. It matters to 60% of the church, and it should matter to 100% of the church. I hope I get a good amen on that one. Central questions in this debate. Let me give you a couple questions. Number one, can women lead men? Two, can women teach men? And to what extent can women hold positions of authority or teaching within the church body? These are the main questions in terms of this, this debate. So uh, let, let me just explain the, the the debate for a minute, and then we'll look at Scripture together and try to understand it maybe um, in, in, uh, for some of us in new ways and uh, for all of us in uh, appropriate ways. So traditionally, the two sides of this debate have been described as complementarian and egalitarian, the two different sides of the debate. Complementarians' view, that, uh, their view is that genders are distinct from one another and yet complete each other. Men are meant to lead and women to follow. Men are meant to teach and women to support. Each gender has equal value in God's eyes but they were each created for different roles within marriage and within the church. So that's, that's complementarian view. The egalitarian side of the debate, their view is that both men and women are equal in God's eyes and equal in their ability to perform all of the offices of the church. Men and women are equal in every way. They can both hold any office and perform any role. Within this view, every office is open to women and, and, and gender-specific marriage roles are no longer relevant. Okay, so these two terms, complementarian and egalitarian, just in, in, in the definitions I've given you, are often helpful to us in that they can be too broad and they can be too extreme. Similar to politics, like when you think about politics in in our country you know if you were to try to describe every person as either conservative or liberal or republican or democrat you'd find a whole bunch of people that just don't seem to fit very well in either category because there's varying levels and there's nuance well it's similar to this to this as well within these two camps of complementarian and egalitarian there is a variety of nuance and there are sometimes large extremes that we come across oftentimes what you'll find is that a moderate complementarian and a moderate egalitarian look more similar in their views of women in the church than they do with the more extreme members of their own camp all right we still together so here's what we're going to do this what we're going to do i'm i want to help us understand the basic views behind each each side of the debate and then i want to look at the fears that shape this conversation okay so complementarians are driven by hierarchy okay you can look at that on the screen if you want to flip to that next one. Complementarians are driven by hierarchy. It's the idea that, that God-given gender dictates hierarchy. On the one extreme are those who believe in a strong hierarchy and limited roles for women. So women are not, not allowed to teach men or any males over the age of 13 in any context. Okay? That's on the extreme side of complementarianism. Only men are permitted to teach mixed groups, to preach or hold church offices, such as elder, pastor, deacon, etc. Women cannot have influence or leadership over men, whether at church, in the home, or in a work setting. This includes prophesying in church, teaching in a seminary setting, or being a boss to men at work. Men are to lead and exercise authority, and women are to submit to that leadership. So, that is the idea. The big idea behind complementarianism is this idea of hierarchy, that it's been been instituted by God. Uh, It's a God given, uh, the God given gender dictates that hierarchy. The egalitarians are really driven on the opposite side of the spectrum. They're really driven by hostility, the idea that gender distinctions are hostile to human flourishing. An egalitarian sees gender distinctions as restrictive and believes that women and men are interchangeable in their roles. Women should be empowered to lead and teach in all areas of the church because women are not only equal to, but are no different to men. Women are encouraged to throw off the chains of patriarchy and oppression and to rethink their faith and traditional Christian views in light of their newfound feminism. In some circles, gender even becomes a fluid concept. As former ways of thinking about men and women are cast aside as oppressive and constricting. And we all kind of understand how that conversation is uh, very dominant in our world right now. What you may have noticed is that within these two options, it's pretty tough to pick a camp. (laughs) It's like, well, I I don't really like either of those, you know? So what are the fears behind each camp? Because fear really has driven the extremes on both sides. So what are the fears that are driving the extremes on both sides of complementarianism and egalitarianism? Let's, let's look at this together. For complementarians, their, f- their fear is of overturning the creation order. Yeah, you can back off that for a second. Um, their fear is overturning the creation order. That there are God-given natural laws that govern the sexes. That's that's what they believe. They believe in Genesis 3.17, I don't have time to to show the scripture today, and you you can look that up yourself, but they believe that that scripture should read as it does in the ESV translation, that women should have desires contrary to their husbands, that women will then seek to take control, but that God intends for a husband to rule over his wife. That's how they understand that verse. And so because they see it this way, as hierarchy being the way that God intended, they deeply fear disobeying God. And they deeply fear what would happen if women led. Would there be a loss of morality if if women led? Would there be a loss of reason? Would we give in to heresy and carnal desires if women led? And for many, there is a real fear. Quite honestly, there's a real fear of losing uh, the power they currently have in their churches and in their families. On the egalitarian side, the fear that really drives them is is this fear uh, of oppression, especially if men continue to have power. They fear that women will continue to be placed in positions of weakness, which then makes them more vulnerable to abuse and violence. And so they also fear the ongoing segregation and stereotypes they, they have experienced in the past as women. Let me just, let me just show this to you um, if you're taking notes today. The fear in complementarianism is overturning God's order, His creation order, and the fear in egalitarianism is ongoing oppression. Okay? So this fear causes both groups to then grab for power. On one hand, men seeking to grab power and hold it over women. On the other hand, this desire to dismantle masculine power and replace it with either female or gender-fluid power. All right. I bet you didn't think you were getting this today. Let me show this next slide. Uh, I want to show you where the, where the complementarians, uh, where their argument begins, their starting point, and then where the egalitarians where their starting point begins. For complementarians, they start with our, our text today, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Okay, that's where they start. Egalitarians, their starting point is with Galatians 3.28, which is again Paul writing, uh, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The argument with this Scripture right here is, is that... Um, as society has evolved and realized that things that maybe were at one time uh, acceptable are no longer like like slavery that the same has happened in terms of like gender distinction when it comes to serving in the church so depending on the views that someone holds they will view look at these depending on the views that somebody holds they will view that one of these verses is more true than the other Depending on, on where somebody falls on this debate or in this argument, they'll look at these these two verses and they will lean further to one than over the other. They'll say, yeah, but this this really aligns more with what I believe. It's more favorable to what I think the Bible is teaching. Well, listen, we don't want to read our own views into Scripture, do we? Like, that's, that's really bad when it comes to, like, understanding Scripture. We don't want to read our own views into Scripture. Like, like so much damage has been done over, over, over the centuries with that type of scriptural interpretation. Like, we want to understand what it actually says so that then we can walk it out appropriately. So, is there an answer to these questions about women in leadership that's not driven by fear and doesn't grasp for power? The answer is Yes. In the midst of hierarchy and hostility, Jesus, I believe, offers us the possibility of harmony, if you're taking notes. He offers us the possibility of harmony. The opportunity to lay down our power in service of others. This is, this is where people get it backwards when they read, you know, when Paul, Paul tells um, women to submit to their husbands. Uh, I mean, they, they forget that, that uh, quickly some men do, that, that he's telling them to, the men to lay down their lives for their wives as Christ laid down his wife for the church. I mean, that's, that's significant submission uh, to lay down your life in that way. Um, we believe, I believe that Jesus offers us the opportunity to not have men or, over women or women over men, but for men and women to lead together. And, uh, and so if you're taking notes, uh, before I switch gears, I gotta give you this right here. The way forward, I believe, is either complementarianism without hierarchy or egalitarianism without hostility. I think both work. I, I think both work. Like if you get, if you can if you can remove the fear that exists behind either side, I think it can work. I think that it's it's okay to believe that there are there's gender distinctions, that there's different roles, that, that maybe 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 women are more uh, uh, better at doing than men, and men vice versa. Uh, I, I think it's also okay to have this uh, to have this understanding that look like like there's reasons why this was taught, and and uh, it's okay to, to to get rid of that. You want to you want to remove the fear behind both arguments. Uh, you want to remove the issue of hierarchy, top down, like like lording authority over, and uh, in, in, you know, a, a weak, oh, the weaker vessel, the, the, the woman, and and uh, on the other side, we we want to remove hostility that wants to break down masculine uh, power and authority, and, and has um, really uh, terrible views of of men in general. Okay. With all of that in mind, I want us to just switch and look at Scripture for a minute. I want us to look at the controversial Scriptures more closely and to ask this question, why does Paul tell women to be silent? Why does Paul tell women to be silent? Okay. So now that you know both sides of the argument, what, hap- what may be happening with you right now is you may go, all right, well, I know where I'm at because one may be more favorable to you and just in, in your, your personal leaning or preference, but that's not what we want to do. We don't, want to, we, want, we don't want to lean to personal preference. We want to understand what the Bible is actually teaching. Amen? Okay, so 1 Timothy 2.8. Let's give it one more time. Let's give it to you one more time. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay? Again, it's on, it's on character, what's happening on the inside versus all the emphasis on what's going on, how they look on the outside. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, a little bit of context is needed. A lot of, a lot of context is needed. Okay, a lot of context. Paul is writing about the church in Ephesus, okay? So he's writing uh, about this church. Ephesus was a specific church in a specific location. Uh, Ephesus was a city, as I've told you before, deeply devoted to the pagan worship of the goddess Artemis. And, uh, and, and so the type of spirituality that existed in Ephesus at the time would have been a combination of Gnosticism, Greek mythology, and pagan temple worship. They, it would have been like a, like a blend of all of these things sort of coming together. Um, the cult of Artemis is, is really what, what we're going to call it. But, it, it, you know, it, it's, I don't know what it was called, but it was this, this spirituality in their city uh, where they worshipped Artemis. It was female-led. It was a female-led cult. There was a strong emphasis within this cult on female superiority, sensuality, and promiscuity. So Artemis, if you remember, as I told you, was a, was a goddess. She was a female god who was believed by many to have bore a child with a human male partner, similar to like Zeus, right, and, 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 and his son Hercules. So um, this belief about Artemis having a child with a, male, uh, a human male partner uh, they believed made Artemis as well as the rest of the women who worshiped her superior to men. That, that, was, that was the belief behind it. So their belief uh, informed through Gnosticism was that Eve was actually right to take the fruit in the garden because through that act, she gained secret knowledge. That's what Gnosticism really was, this idea of you could gain some, some, some secret knowledge. So the idea for women here who are influenced by Gnosticism was that, was that Eve was right to take the first bite in the garden. Because of doing that, she gained a knowledge that she didn't have before that. So within Gnosticism, Eve taking a bite first and then giving it to Adam caused them to believe that women were supposed to lead over men. And this is the environment that the church that Paul is writing to is surrounded by in Ephesus. There is this Christian church. Surrounded by a spiritual environment that is female led, that is influenced by uh, Greek mythology and Gnosticism, where, where uh, there is this belief that women are superior to men and that Eve was in the right to not only eat the apple or the fruit to gain a secret knowledge, but that it proves that she is to lead, uh, lead men. That's pretty wild so the church in Ephesus, in light, of, in light of all that context, the church in Ephesus, as they are evangelizing the city, right? So they've set up shop. They're telling people about the gospel of Jesus. As they are evangelizing the city and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus, women are coming to faith in Jesus who had been Gnostics and had been worshipers of Artemis. That's what's going on here in this church. And so they're trying to figure out how to bring new believing women who have come from Greek cultic practices and have different views on speaking and teaching into their church community, right? There's a, there's a big difference here in terms of what they thought was acceptable and how they had been taught spiritually, and now what the uh, what things are to look like within the church. How do they empower these women, but also maintain orderly worship? So, one of the things you might notice here in in First Timothy two is the heightened language. It seems a little intense, you know, around around specifically silence and submission, and that's because. If you continue to read in 1 Timothy, which I know many of you have, three chapters over in 1 Timothy 5, there are these women who have started to really spread heresy and false doctrines in regards to the Mosaic law. And you might miss it if you don't really understand what's going on there. But Paul calls these women gossips and busybodies, saying things that they, not, they ought not to. So, so th- this, is, this is what's going on in their, in their city and in their, ch- in their church. These women probably felt more empowered because of the Gnostic views they had come out of, thinking that as a woman, they have this secret knowledge about the things of God, but they were actually leading people astray. And so Paul uses strong language in regards to these women, saying that they don't know what they think they know. okay, And that they should take a posture of a disciple because there is much for them to learn. So they've come in and they've, they've been leaders in this cult. They've been... They've been You know, uh, able to 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 teach and to say, you know, uh, really whatever they wanted in this other cult, and they're coming into the church, and Paul's like, "You don't know what you think you know. You need to sit and take the posture of a disciple, and you need to learn. A disciple is one who sits and listens at the feet of of the rabbi in quietness and in full submission. By the way, that's what Paul's talking about here. He wants them to learn and to study the scriptures and to do so in quietness." and in full submission as a disciple until they have learned the things that a disciple must learn. So, I think, so what I believe, that it's not that they should never speak, it's that they should learn first. You got to remember that in the first century, like women were predominantly uneducated. Predominantly like there was just no path to education for women. So, so I mean, think about Paul Paul's not even just saying here that they shouldn't learn, which that's a little controversial here. He's saying they should learn, but when they do, it should be in quietness and in submission in their context because many of them are, are uneducated and when they when they would stand to speak, like they just would not have um, uh, something to say that would necessarily make a lot of sense. Um, and so he's telling them to, to, to learn first before they speak. He, he's telling them that even though in Gnosticism you're taught that Eve is better than Adam, that actually isn't true. That you shouldn't domineer over men. It's better for men and women to gather so so verses 13 and 14 uh, are interesting they seem out of place when he says for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not the one who deceived it was the woman who deceived and became a sinner you're like why did you got to throw that in there that it doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand what's really happening with with the um uh with these these women and this spirituality that's deeply influenced by gnosticism that, that believe that eve was in the right to take the, the apple or the fruit and to uh, also um, lead her husband towards that path. Paul is retelling the story of Genesis to, to confront the false belief of Gnosticism. That's what he's doing. That's, that's, it's, brilliant. Uh, it's brilliant what he's doing here. He's sneaking that in. He's confronting Gnosticism by bringing up the creation story Verse 15, and this is where a lot of us get hung up. We're like, what does that even mean? And we move on. Uh, and you can, you can throw that back up. Yeah, verse 15 where he says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Uh, hey, y'all love that one. Let me just tell you what this does not mean, okay? This does not mean that all women are good for is to have uh, babies, right? This is not what this, is, this means. Again, it's within context of what's going on here. Paul is saying that if you are a woman in the church and you have been spreading heresy, you have been communicating things that you should not be communicating, remember first that you're not supposed to be doing that, that it's not good, but that if you do, even if you're deceived in the same way that Eve was deceived, okay, this is the example. If if you're a woman in the church and you've been deceived the same way Eve has been deceived, you too can be saved through her childbearing. Not through your childbearing, through her childbearing. She, Eve, right, the first woman, through her seed comes Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent that is talked about in Genesis. So even when women are creating division within the church, as we see here in Ephesus, what Paul is writing about is he's saying they can turn, and with faith, love, and holiness, with propriety, they can turn back to Jesus as there's hope for them. That's what's happening here. So this is not like a call to all women to just, just you know, have... Every time you sin, just go have another baby. You know, like that's not that's not what we're what we're teaching. Okay, and but but listen, listen. And I know there's some humor in that, but some of these scriptures have been have been have been used in in a way that has been deeply oppressive to women in the church, been lorded over them and, and made to do things that um, are just just not okay. The next example, uh, as I, as I'm continuing through. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the other example in Scripture that I shared with you a minute ago. Um, let's read it again. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Okay, That's what's going on here. This is about order and peace in the church. This is, this, is about, um, uh, this is about order in the church. So, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right. So again, first century women were considered to be just above the level of slaves. That's why Galatians 3 is even written the way it is. Neither slave nor free, male nor female. That's why it's written that way, right? You're talking about the status of women in culture. Women were not educated in the first century. Way undereducated. Most of them um, had no education at all. This is a uh, patriarchal uh, culture. I messed that up. So, when it comes to understanding Scripture here, these women, they haven't received the same type of education in the Torah that all the boys were required to receive. Uh, They hadn't memorized the Torah in its entirety by the age of 10. There are actual writings that we have today from some um, some rabbis in the first century telling us that when uneducated women came to the synagogue, they often had a hard time understanding what was going on, so these women would ask their husbands in the middle of the sermon when the rabbi was up there trying to talk. Well, the problem with that is, if you understand you know, you know, their culture back then, is that when they came to the synagogue, the men and the women were segregated. Men on one side and women on the other. So when a woman had a question, one, she's uneducated, and she has a question about the Scriptures, she would ask her husband, who's on the other side of the room, and it was, it was, it was a disruption. It was causing problems in the service because uh, they're, they're, they're um, creating a distraction for everybody there. Asking your husband a question from across the room would have been incredibly distracting, as you can imagine. That's why rabbis made a rule that there couldn't be any questions in church. You had to wait until afterwards. So Paul is, all, all Paul is saying here is to women, it, it really is just don't cause a disruption in the service. That's what he's saying. If you're taking notes today, I want you to look at this. It's my belief that not only does the Bible permit women to have influence and to teach within the church, but that there is overwhelming evidence that supports this. Overwhelming evidence that supports this. Now, I've given you two examples that, that, uh, uh, that restrict. Uh, there's also 1 Corinthians 11, which I didn't have time to get into, but uh, I could if you'd like to uh, with me some time. I believe that there's overwhelming evidence that supports, that, that, that the Bible permits women to have influence and to teach within the church. Let me just give you quickly some Old Testament examples. In the Old Testament, we have, we have uh, many examples of women who served in leadership positions. Uh, of note are a few women I listed here. Uh, Mar- Miriam is one. This is Moses's sister. And uh, you can go look in the book of Exodus. She was actually referred to as a prophetess, which is a pretty wild title to give a woman in Old Testament culture, by the way. Right? A prophet is a significant person. <laughs> a significant person. Like, not everybody has access to the Holy Spirit and the ability to like, speak on behalf of God. Miriam is referred to as a prophetess. She serves alongside her brothers Moses and Aaron during the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. It says... In uh, Exodus 15:20, 20, the, the, I don't have this on the screen, but you can write that down if you'd like. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. So again, she was a prophetess. Uh, second, we have Deborah. Deborah, Judges 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, tell her story. It's the story of a remarkable woman who served as a judge over all of Israel and rallied the army of Israel to victory over the Canaanites. Um, again, it's a male patriarchal society, culture, and all of a sudden, like the the person who, who rises to uh, leadership over the nation of Israel is a woman named Deborah. This is Old Testament, right? We're not even getting into the early church yet. She leads the entire nation. This was before kings were established. So this was before King Saul and King David and King Solomon, right? This is before them. So if you remember who the judges were, Samson was a judge. There were other judges. Gideon was a judge. Uh, Deborah is a judge as well, and there's a period of time where she rules in leadership over Israel. She leads them to victory uh, uh, over the Canaanites. Uh, Esther is on here, and she's a Jewish woman. She's a Jewish woman who becomes queen over Persia, which which is a pagan empire. She becomes the queen over Persia. She ends up rescuing her people from a man named Haman, who was an evil prime minister who threatened to exterminate the Jews? You can read her story in the book of Esther. And then uh, another one I wanted to give you was a woman named Rahab who is a citizen of Jericho. She's actually a prostitute in Jericho. And uh, and she hides and protects the Hebrew spies who were there to, to spy out the city before they marched around seven times. Um, when, when the walls of Jericho come down, the Bible says only her family survived Jericho's defeat. Only them were the ones who lived. She eventually goes on and marries a Jewish man and is listed in Matthew 5.5 as an ancestor of Jesus. Pretty big deal. She's praised in Hebrews chapter 11 for her great faith. Pretty incredible woman. I could give you at least 15 to 20 other examples in the Old Testament, but I just don't have time for that today. There's so many women who had great leadership in the Old Testament. Somewhat surprisingly is that in spite of the stigma against women in the ancient Near Eastern cultures... The Bible seems to highlight and also emphasize the importance of these women rather than opting to censor their stories, which is what you would, you would imagine would be going on. Like, they, they are um, highlighted in, in great detail. So I'll give you some Old Testament examples. Let me give you some Jesus examples, okay? Perhaps the most persuasive argument in support of women serving in leadership positions within the church is Jesus' countercultural affirmation and empowerment of women. In a patriarchal society where women had very little value, which I've already mentioned, Jesus creates a different paradigm for women, uh, it, it, especially by the way he interacts with them. In the life of Jesus, we see women involved in, involved in every part of his life and ministry, from his birth, okay? Uh, we see uh, th- three major women at his birth, obviously Mary, his mother, Elizabeth, his aunt, and uh, we also see Anna, the prophetess Anna. Uh, Simeon and Anna are, are part of the story there in Luke's Gospel, Uh, and they all three actually prophesy to others about Jesus. We also see uh, that some of Jesus' closest friends and followers were women, uh, as you read his, his story and his ministry. You know, some have thought that since Jesus only chose men as his disciples, that this means that he was creating a hierarchy of men over women. But I don't think that that's what's really happening here. Jesus is creating... A picture of what he is is come here to do, and he's as he's selecting his disciples. Because Jesus, if you read Hebrews, he's really come here as, as a new Moses to give a new covenant, and so he's forming a new Israel around him. That's why there are 12 men, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But immediately outside of the 12, okay, Jesus invites several women to follow along as well. In describing the group that accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry, Luke lists women including Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and uh, he says many others along with the 12 disciples. Really big deal. You can go read about those women in, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we also see uh, in Jesus' life that, uh, that he, allowed, he allowed a sinful woman to come close to him. Uh, she is described as a woman of the night. Uh, Mary of Bethany enters a Pharisee's home where Jesus was eating and she anointed Jesus' feet with oil. If you remember this story, the disciples, the disciples condemned her for her actions, but Jesus allowed her to remain and her act of devotion won higher praise from Jesus uh, than any other at, Her act of worship uh, won higher praise from Jesus than any other acts in the Gospels. Again, like, Jesus is affirming and he is bringing women close to him that like everybody else has, um, has done away with and would want nothing uh, to do with. So uh, we also see that Jesus allows um, or, or comes near to uh, what the Bible would describe as untouchable women. Jesus affirmed several women who were untouchable by society's standards. There's a woman who was ceremonially unclean because of chronic bleeding. Uh, there's a Samaritan woman at the well who'd been married five times. Uh, yeah, there's a reason why she was there at you know, the hottest moment of the day, not when everybody else was, was getting water because uh, you know, uh, she had a reputation uh, that was unsavory. And so, uh, but Jesus spends time with her. Uh, there's the woman caught in the act of adultery that Jesus interacts with. And then there is a Gentile woman with a demon-possessed daughter that he comes near. Also, we have that there are women present at the end of Jesus' life uh, um, when he is on the cross or he is facing the, the very end. If you remember the story of Jesus before Pilate, Pilate's wife is the only person who came to Jesus' defense after his arrest. Do you remember that? She comes, she comes to his defense. When the disciples fled during Jesus' trial and, cru- and crucifixion, the women remained with him. So that's, that's another, another thing, uh, you know. Um, yeah, the, the, men, the men are nowhere to be found, but the women remain near Jesus. John records that Jesus' mother, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, stood near the cross at the crucifixion. After his resurrection, and one of my favorite examples is after his resurrection, Jesus appeared first to the women who came to mourn at his tomb. And then he instructs them to go tell the disciples of his resurrection. So the, the, the women at the tomb are the, are the first who actually who actually testify to the resurrection of Jesus, and they go and they tell men about it. There are many, many other examples in Jesus' ministry. Let me also give you some early church examples, and then I'm going to try to bring this to a close and land the plane, and uh, peace out for vacation. So, um, yeah. Early church examples, let me give you some of these. Okay, there are plenty of examples of women who spoke prayed and prophesied in church settings without being rebuked or reprimanded for it. Uh, Many are even commended for doing this. Uh, We have, first off, the significance of what happens on the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts 1 and in Acts 2. Acts 1 notes that women were among the disciples who were gathered in the upper room before Pentecost. And so it's not just the 12 in the upper room when the Spirit descends upon uh, the the, the believers who were gathered there. There's women there as well in Acts 2. Really significant. Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel and says that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, men and women will prophesy. Uh, this was a radical thing to, to, to say in the first century here. So, Acts 2 17 through 18, if you want to jot that down, says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. This is a really, really powerful scripture to look at really the view that God has in terms of, of not making like gender distinctions between, in terms of hierarchy. so uh, what we know is that regardless of what the church has believed and taught, maybe some have taught complementarian views and others have taught egalitarian views. Regardless, you can't get around Acts two, quoting the prophet Joel, that in the last days, meaning in the days before Jesus returns, uh, he's going to pour out his spirit on sons and daughters, on men and women. They're going to pro- and they're going to prophesy. It's a big deal. So regardless of what's been taught and what people have said is like not allowed, like that we know that is going to change <laughs> uh, if if they've taught that. Uh, we also see in, uh, in the early church uh, examples of, of um, uh, Timothy's uh, mother and grandmother. Uh, 1 Timothy 1. 1.5, you've already read this if you've been reading through 1 Timothy, but it reveals that Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois passed on their faith to him, so they instructed him in his faith. You know, uh, it's a really big deal uh, to mention them. Uh, you also have the example of Lydia in the, in the, in the book of Acts, uh, where her and her household were baptized and then the church in Philippi began to meet in her home. That's, that, that's, that just doesn't happen. You know, if you were the one hosting the church in your home, it was usually a responsibility that was reserved for a pastor or an elder. So for Lydia to be hosting the church in her home says something about her that is really significant, that she had a significant role in the church. We're not sure exactly what her role was, but it had to be significant for her to be hosting the church in her home. You also have Phoebe. You can read about her in Acts 16. Paul refers to a woman named Phoebe here as a deacon and describes her as a fellow laborer for the gospel okay she's a deacon in the church and he describes her as a fellow laborer for the gospel a couple other really good examples here one is Priscilla Uh, Paul greets uh, Priscilla also in Acts 16 and calls her another fellow laborer in the gospel in addition to working as tent makers Priscilla and her husband Aquila they oversaw a congregation that met in their home And so although some people interpret 1 Timothy 2 as forbidding women from teaching or having authority over men in any circumstance, Acts 18 says that Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos, an an apostle, by the way, who was in need of further teaching. So Acts 18.26, I don't have it on the screen, you can write that down. It says, this is about Apollos, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla And Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So we see that Priscilla is actually instructing one of the apostles how to adequately teach the Scriptures. Big deal. And then also, uh, there's a woman in Romans 16 um, by the name of, of Junia. Paul mentions that a woman named Junia was imprisoned along with him for the sake of the gospel, and he describes her as, in quotes, outstanding among the apostles. She was a believer in Jesus, apparently, before Paul was a believer, and he describes her as outstanding among the apostles. Some have assumed that that means that she was an apostle herself. Um, either way, uh, man, she was a godly woman, and she had great influence in the church in those days. Let me just, again, like all the other slides, there's many, many, many more examples of this. I only have the time to give you a few. So let me try to close this for you, and I'm, I'm about done. Uh, thank God. I want to show you this thought I have uh, on the screen um, as, as I try to kind of explain to you what I'm, what I'm really thinking on these, on, on these scriptures. The two passages that initially seem to prohibit women in ministry uh, don't seem nearly as clear in light of the many opposing examples throughout the Bible, so the ones I just explained to you. If women are by command and design forbidden to speak in church, teach, or have authority over men in any capacity or under any circumstances, why are there so many examples of women who served in positions of authority in the Bible? That's an important question to ask. Why why are they there? Uh, You can't get around those examples. Again, if you're taking notes, I believe that these few verses that restrict women from teaching and preaching no longer apply because the circumstances that required them, especially a lack of education, no longer exist. So they were, they, they, they were necessary, potentially they were necessary because of what was happening in the culture. Obviously, if women are uneducated, they should not be teaching in the church. They should, get, they should become educated. They should learn first. Um, and this, this is really what's going on. Obviously, if men and women are segregated on opposite sides of the room and a woman doesn't understand what's being taught because she's uneducated, it's probably not a good idea for her to shout across the room at her husband in the middle of a sermon, right, to find out what is being taught. So I, I believe that the, the verses that restrict women uh, no longer apply because the circumstances that require them no longer exist. And so... You know, whatever suspicions and criticisms people may have about women pastors today, their objections probably have nothing to do with uh, fertility cults, <laughs> as, w- as was the case in Ephesus. Um, and when, when people today argue that women should be silent in church, it's probably not because women are disrupting the service because they don't understand what's going on or that they're uneducated. That's probably, you know, people who, who teach a compl- an extreme complementarian view... Uh, they probably don't have these issues that they're dealing with. The circumstances that really required the rules to exist, I think, no longer are necessary, no longer exist. So, again, moving on, if you're taking notes, Jesus has eliminated all the external distinctions of class, race, gender, and wealth as ways of judging a person's ability to minister effectively. The real question is not one of gender, but of calling. It's not one of gender, it's one of calling. And then just a couple things as I close. Um, Again, if you're taking notes, Jesus calls both men and women to be his disciples and to make disciples. Jesus calls both men and women to be his disciples and to make disciples. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 28, Paul writes and says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? You want to come up and just play for a second? Just quietly. You need to stand as I get ready to close here. I just want to pray for a minute. I appreciate you just one um, uh, bearing with me through that. Uh, as you know, if you've attended our church for any length of time, these aren't the norms. Messages like this, but man, you know, we really, really wanted in terms of teaching through First Timothy and other other books of the Bible that we've taught to not to not avoid tough stuff. The Bible's filled with tough stuff. The Bible's, you know, I I would love to just have. Uh, you know, every Sunday be like, grace and love, grace and love, everybody. You know, like, I, I love that. It's so necessary. We should emphasize grace and love. But we can't just, we can't just like bypass the tough stuff that exists in Scripture. And we got to make sure we understand it correctly. And that we also don't just like throw it out and say, well, I, I don't want nothing to do with that. And what happens is we kind of lift thing, scriptures out of the Bible that we, uh, that we like over others. And then we, we like lean into them and it creates theology in us uh, without even realizing it that sometimes is is wrong. And so, we don't want to bypass tough stuff in, in, in our church and uh, want to make sure that you, we all have a, a great understanding of what the scriptures are really teaching. We're um, really excited next week. Uh, um, Emily Olson's going to be preaching here uh, on Sunday morning next week. encourage you to be here and to pack the house for that. Let me just say a couple things. Women, if you're listening to me right now, women, You are needed and you are wanted in this church, all right? As the pastor, as the lead pastor of our church, I want you to know that you are needed and you are wanted in this church. We want you to lead, we want you to teach, and we want you to fully participate in this church. Men, you are needed in this church. You are needed in this church. You are wanted in this church. We want you to lead. We want you to teach. We want you to fully participate. We want you to grow and mature in your faith so that the gifts that God has on your life can be used for his glory and for his kingdom. Hmm. Would you bow your heads? Holy Spirit, we just invite you to settle in this place right now. And everything that I was unable to do, I pray that you would go and, and do right now. I pray that you would finish the work of this message deep in our hearts and in our spirit right now, God. I just pray over the, the women in this church, God, that there would be a, a freeing uh, of them and uh, in, 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 in maybe a, a lightness uh, as they even walk out of here today, that they would uh, maybe even for some the first time realize that, uh, that you, you see them this way, uh, that they are capable, that they are uh, gifted, that they are, are women that you have anointed to do good works for your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray for just a, a, a special uh, grace upon them, a, a new season of dreaming and, and wondering and uh, listening to your spirit about what is actually on their life. Uh, in, in terms of calling um, and, and that we would find in this church many women who would rise up in great anointing and in great power to, uh, to be highly influential in your kingdom and in your church, oh God. I pray that this church would be a safe place for women, be a safe place for women to exercise the gifts, the spiritual gifts that you have put on them for your kingdom. And Lord, I ask for just a, uh, uh, yeah, I just ask for just a, a, a calling for a ministry for the men of this church, God, to empower our wives, to empower these women in this church. God, to to be um, powerful, godly women, to rise up in all that they have, that we would support them, that we would uh, not be intimidated by that, that there would be no fear of loss of, you know, uh, authority or power or anything else. But Lord, I pray that the the real desire that you have, uh, that... that, uh, that through the cross there's neither uh, uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but that we're all one in Christ. I pray that we would be a church that really embodies that truth, that we embody that truth. And, uh, and so God, I, I, I know that these are tough messages um, not necessarily ones we get out of bed for, probably not something that people in this room were struggling with in a great way this week, thinking, man, if I could just get to Sunday, maybe I'll get some hope. I, I realize this message probably didn't, didn't offer that hope, but Lord, I know that right now, every person under the sound of my voice, like they don't need a sermon today. They need an encounter with you. They don't need a, a sermon that's gonna just fix all their problems. They need, the, they need an encounter with the living God. And so I pray that you would, uh, you would do that right now that you'd impact every person here today in deep and profound ways and that the heart that you have for for your people, your your men and your women, your sons and your daughters, uh, man, that it would be established in this church, that it would look the way it's meant to look uh, and that any pain uh, that has happened by way of the church over the years would not uh, perpetuate itself uh, here at New Point. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. It's the name that's above all names. It's the name by which we do what we do and live how we live that we give thanks and praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.